This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today, we have the May 13th, 1943 edition of the CBS Morning News. It includes updates on the war from Australia, London, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash WW2radio. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. But first, here are the highlights of the latest news as received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Thursday, May 13th. The RAF carried out the heaviest raid in history last night, dropping more than 1,500 tons of bombs on Duisburg, Germany. The Allied forces in Tunisia are busy counting prisoners. The Russians chased the Germans out of a town on the Donet River Basin during the night, and renewed land activity is reported from the southwest Pacific. Now, here is Mel Allen. Before calling in Columbia's correspondence, here's the latest news from the Russian battlefront. Red Army ground forces are engaging the Germans in bitter new clashes in the Western Caucasus and in the Donetsk River Basin today. Northeast of Novorossiysk, Soviet troops wiped out a company of German infantry when they suppressed a series of counterattacks. The Donetsk fighting occurred in the area of Lysychansk. The Nazis unleashed a fierce assault which carried them into the outskirts of an unidentified locality. In dogged street battles, the Russians succeeded in driving the enemy out. Then, the Russians pursued the retreating Nazis and captured a strategic height. Sporadic artillery and sniper action is reported from other sectors of the long Russian front. Artillery destroyed 10 German blockhouses around Leningrad. Now for our first overseas report and news of the Southwest Pacific, we take you to CBS Australia. George Morad reporting. Australia continues to rejoice in a very personal way over the victory in North Africa. But the eyes of this nation are tonight fixed anxiously on Washington and the conferences on grand strategy between Mr. Roosevelt, Mr. Churchill, and their imposing staffs. Considerable importance is attached here to the fact that Field Marshal Wayville, Commander-in-Chief of the Indian Theater, General Joe Stilwell, and Chenault of China are present for these momentous talks. The drama of the Casablanca Conference and its corollary in the smashing Tunisian victory has built up to an electric thrill over the present meeting. Australia is being told by reports from America that an offensive against Japan is almost certain to be plotted soon. Among supporting signs are the dangerous nip advances in China and Burma, 
which in the last analysis is the broad road to Tokyo. And since the Burma monsoons do not end until September, we have this three-month margin of safety to prepare the campaign. The tremendous responsibility of speaking for Australia in the Southwest Pacific falls upon Dr. Herbert Abbott, Minister of Foreign Affairs, who has been in Washington for several weeks. Dr. Abbott was sent to plead for increased air power, but now, in the words of the influential Sydney Sun, has been given a golden opportunity to explain Pacific views to the masters of allied strategy. In this weighty task, if that is what Australia expects of him, Dr. Abbott is at a considerable disadvantage. A single individual, unsupported by the array of military and naval experts representing other theaters. But on the other hand, it is a better break than this area has had before. In previous conferences on grand strategy, Australia just wasn't there. Many observers feel the benefit which is to be derived from Dr. Abbott's presence at this time is not limited to whatever military decisions may be taken against Japan, for it is hardly expected we can let up on Europe now. It will be quite enough if capable Dr. Abbott can explain to this distinguished company how rapidly and powerfully Japan is consolidating her South Pacific Empire. And if in turn he is able to convey to Allied leaders here a clear understanding of the grand Allied strategy. This is George L. Moran in Australia. I now return you to CBS in New York. There is a lot of speculation that new Allied blows in the Pacific are being planned in the Roosevelt-Churchill Conference. For more news on that subject and other developments in the nation's capital, we take you to CBS Washington. Robert Lewis reporting. Washington is firmly convinced this morning that the Far East is the principal subject of the current Roosevelt-Churchill Conference. This belief is based on some facts, but largely on other pieces of information which, when taken together, for most of the necessary parts to complete the jigsaw picture. High on the list of reasons for this supposition are these facts. It's practically unbelievable that Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Churchill have not long ago formulated their plans for the second front. These plans may take some last-minute revisions in light of the sudden and complete collapse of Tunisia, but for the most part they're believed to be already well advanced. Therefore, and this is considered most significant, is the fact that Mr. Churchill brought with him his top commanders from the India-Burma-China theater. And add to these American commanders Stilwell and Chenault, and you have the entire Anglo-American command in that theater right here in Washington. These officers and these officers alone are in a position to open the only avenue through to China, Burma and the Burma roads. That the enemy now controls this road has become of extreme importance for two reasons. One, the reopening of the Mediterranean greatly reduces the shipping distance to India, so that delivery of greatly increased materiel there this summer seems certain. And two, until those supplies can then be shipped on to China, the full weight of Allied power cannot be brought to bear on Japan's flank. However, if the Allied leaders are planning a Burma campaign, it's felt that other Allied blows in the Pacific are also in the making. Most speculation calls for positive action in the Aleutians in the near future, whereas the Burma campaign, it's felt, probably will be timed for some time this fall. And another indication of pending action in the Pacific is the announcement that General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral William Halsey have been holding a series of conferences down under. However, all this may prove to be, the first reaction to Mr. Churchill's arrival remains uppermost in the minds of most persons here. That first reaction, the second front, has settled down nonetheless because of the realization that any such undertaking surely must have been planned long ago. Meanwhile, Washington is extremely busy on other problems. 
Congress will take time out from the tax and reciprocal trade agreement problems to hear President Benesh at Czechoslovakia today. After that, the House is expected to approve the, state, the Trade Agreements Act for another two years, and the Senate will continue debate on the tax bill, with indications that the Finance Committee's version of the Rummel Plan will be adopted. On the labor front, the War Labor Board begins consideration of a huge backlog of wage increases. This is Robert Lewis in Washington. Now back to CBS New York and Mel Allen. The fighting in Tunisia is over. For a direct report on that situation, we take you to CBS Algiers. Charles Collingwood reporting. We regret that we are unable to contact Algiers for a direct report on the Tunisian campaign. However, here are the latest wire dispatches from North Africa. Victorious Allied armies are eliminating the few small pockets of Axis resistance remaining in Tunisia today after winning the six-month campaign that was planned as a prelude to invasion of the European continent. The first communique issued from Allied headquarters since the end of organized German and Italian resistance announced yesterday says that the mopping up was in progress, that Allied naval forces were keeping a close watch on both sides of the Cap Bon Peninsula to prevent escape of the enemy stragglers by sea, and reviewed the events that led to the enemy's capitulation. An Italian communique indicates that General Giovanni Messa, Italian commander in Tunisia, had been captured. The announcement by the Rome radio said that he headed the Italian troops that had ceased fighting on orders from Premier Benito Mussolini. The Allied command revealed that General von Arnim, the Axis commander-in-chief in Africa, had been captured yesterday by Empire troops of the 4th Engine Division near the mouth of the Cap Bon Peninsula. It also is disclosed that the first fighting French division, after three days of heavy fighting, forced the collapse of one of the last Axis units in the Zaguan area. The French captured more than 22,000 prisoners, it was said. A strong bombing attack was made in mid-afternoon on enemy troops surrounded in the coastal sector north of Enfeetable, and this prompted the Axis First Army to ask for turns. The 6th Armored Division of the British First Army pressed down from the north and made a junction with the 8th Army, and this was the end of all organized resistance. Today's communique also says... Naval forces still maintain their close watch on both sides of the Cap Bun Peninsula to prevent any escape of the enemy by sea. In the last two days, naval units have captured various little parties of troops trying to reach Pantelleria in small boats. Yesterday morning, May 12th, 126 German and Italian troops were taken from Zembra Island, 12 miles westward off Cape Bon. On the night of May 11th, 12th, Wellington bombers of the Strategic Air Force attacked the harbor of Marsala. Many bursts were seen in the dock areas, and large fires were started. During the same night, both fighters of the Coastal Air Force on patrol shot down four enemy aircraft. Yesterday, light and medium bombers of the Tactical Air Force attacked the remaining enemy positions in Tunisia. None of our aircraft is missing from these operations. And that's the news from Tunisia. The RAF raided Germany again during the night. For details on that story and other news developments, we take you to CBS London. Paul Manning reporting. Britain's Royal Air Force staged the heaviest raid of the war last night. More than 1,500 tons of bombs were dropped on Duisburg, which is more than the bomb load which saturated Cologne in that 1,000-plane raid last May. The weather was good over Duisburg. The Air Ministry this morning said destruction to this German railway and factory city was very great. 34 bombers are missing from last night's operation. The capture of Arnhem and his army is good news here in London. 
people are delighted. They thought Cabon might hold out for another month, at least. In the House of Commons this morning, Deputy Prime Minister Attlee formally announced the end of the Tunisian campaign. He echoed the sentiments of London by saying, the battle just now concluded will be considered a classic example of military art. He admitted that even to him, the end had come more swiftly and completely than was anticipated. Among the items listed as captured were more than a thousand guns, several thousand trucks, 250 tanks, 150,000 troops, and some 14 generals. And he said this battleground, now in our hands, would become a forward base from which new attacks will be launched on Europe. Everyone here, of course, is speculating on the next Allied move. The London News Chronicle this morning has a large map which shows eight possible gateways into Europe. And the Daily Sketch editorially announces, it is now Hitler's turn to guess. But one other effect which the fall of Tunisia has had in London is to stimulate light-hearted punsters. One columnist in the Daily Herald writes this today. Goebbels sat facing Hitler when the news from Bizerta came in. Himmler, von Ribbentrop, and other Nordic supermen sat around. All eyes were on Hitler. Praise the sword, said Goebbels, and pass the intuition. The Battle of the Atlantic is also given great prominence this morning. The Admiralty here have released the story of one convoy's eight-day battle against U-boats. It was a harrowing experience, yet most of those ships arrived safely in England. But ten U-boats will never reach Germany. I return you now to CBS in New York and Mel Allen. The Allied victory in North Africa is resulting in any number of rumors from the European continent. All of them portray invasion jitters on the part of the Axis. Marshal Rommel and General Keitel are said to be conferring in Greece on the defense of the Balkans. Adolf Hitler and the Nazi munitions minister are said to have just concluded an inspection tour of the defenses in western France. Italy is expected by some to occupy part of the Savoy province of France along the Italian border and part of the French Mediterranean coast. And that's the highlight of the news from inside Europe. All those reports are rumors having to do with the invasion. But here at home, we have concrete facts that portend no good for the Axis. American anti-aircraft strength is being bolstered by development of a new gun designed to match a five-incher believed to be in the possession of the Germans. The brigade commander at Fort Bliss, Texas, General Richardson, says the new anti-aircraft gun is comparable to that which Germany is using in defense of its cities. In Minneapolis, an Army test pilot has just made a successful flight with a first glider powered by its own motors. Easily detached, the motors are light and relatively inexpensive. Army jeeps have been put to another use in the flooded lower Arkansas River Valley. The jeeps have been dashing in and out of the swirling floodwaters over a 40-mile radius. They are credited with saving scores of lives. Rubber pontoons, assault boats, and speedboats also are being employed in rescue work. The river's in the stages of its worst flood in its history, topping by almost four feet the record stage recorded at Fort Smith, Arkansas, 110 years ago. In Oklahoma, the river has left six known dead, 22 missing, hundreds homeless, and untold property damage. In New York City, government officials are continuing their drive against black market operations. And that's the latest news. Once again, Columbia's brought you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. You heard from George Morad in Australia, Robert Lewis in Washington, Paul Manning in London. This is Mel Allen reporting for CBS World News. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>